Chapter Thirteen of The Lost World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Thirteen A Sight Which I Shall Never Forget. Just as the sun was setting upon that melancholy night, I saw the lonely figure of the Indian upon the vast plain beneath me, and I watched him, our one faint hope of salvation, until he disappeared in the rising mists of evening which lay, rose-tinted from the setting sun, between the far-off river and me. It was quite dark when I at last turned back to our stricken camp, and my last vision as I went was the red gleam of Zambo's fire the one point of light in the wide world below, as was his faithful presence in my own shadowed soul. And yet I felt happier than I had done since this crushing blow had fallen upon me, for it was good to think that the world should know what we had done, so that at the worst our names should not perish with our bodies, but should go down to posterity associated with the result of our labours. It was an awesome thing to sleep in that ill-fated camp, and yet it was even more unnerving to do so in the jungle. One or the other it must be. Prudence, on the one hand, warned me that I should remain on guard, but exhausted nature, on the other, declared that I should do nothing of the kind. I climbed up on to a limb of the great ginkgo tree, but there was no secure perch on its rounded surface, and I should certainly have fallen off and broken my neck the moment I began to doze. I got down, therefore, and pondered over what I should do. Finally I closed the door of the zareba, lit three separate fires in a triangle, and having eaten a hearty supper, dropped off into a profound sleep, from which I had a strange and most welcome awakening. In the early morning, just as day was breaking, a hand was laid upon my arm, and starting up, with all my nerves in a tingle and my hand feeling for a rifle, I gave a cry of joy as in the cold grey light I saw Lord John Roxton kneeling beside me. It was he, and yet it was not he. I had left him calm in his bearing, correct in his person, prim in his dress. Now he was pale and wild-eyed, gasping as he breathed like one who has run far and fast. His gaunt face was scratched and bloody, his clothes were hanging in rags, and his hat was gone. I stared in amazement, but he gave me no chance for questions. He was grabbing at our stores all the time he spoke. "'Quick, young fella, quick!' he cried. "'Every moment counts. Get the rifles, both of them. I have the other two. Now, all the cartridges you can gather. Fill up your pockets. Now, some food. Half a dozen tins will do. That's all right. Don't wait to talk or think. Get a move on, or we are done.' still half awake, and unable to imagine what it all might mean, I found myself hurrying madly after him through the wood, a rifle under each arm, and a pile of various stores in my hands. He dodged in and out through the thickest of the scrub until he came to a dense clump of brushwood. Into this he rushed, regardless of thorns, and threw himself into the heart of it, pulling me down by his side. "'There!' he panted. I think we are safe here. They'll make for the camp as sure as fate. It will be their first idea. But this should puzzle them. What is it all? I asked when I had got my breath. Where are the professors? And who is it that is after us? The ape-men! he cried. My God! What brutes! Don't raise your voice, for they have long ears. Sharp eyes, too, but no power of scent so far as I could judge, so I don't think they can sniff us out. Where have you been, young fella? You were well out of it." In a few sentences I whispered what I had done. "'Pretty bad,' said he, when he had heard of the dinosaur and the pit. "'It isn't quite the place for a rescue, what? But I had no idea what its possibilities were until those devils got hold of us. The man-eaten Papuans had me once but they are Chesterfields compared to this crowd. 
"'How did it happen?' I asked. "'It was in the early morning. Our learned friends were just stirring. Hadn't even begun to argue yet. Suddenly it rained apes. They came down as thick as apples, out of a tree. They had been assembling in the dark, I suppose, until that great tree over our heads was heavy with them. I shot one of them through the belly, but before we knew where we were they had us spread-eagled on our backs. I called them apes, but they carried sticks and stones in their hands and jabbered talk to each other, and ended up by tying our hands with creepers, so they are ahead of any beast that I have seen in my wanderings. Ape-men, that's what they are, missin' links, and I wish they had stayed missin'. They carried off their wounded comrade, he was bleedin' like a pig, and then they sat around us, and if ever I saw frozen murder, it was in their faces. They were big fellows, as big as a man, and a deal stronger. Curious glassy grey eyes they have, under red tufts, and they just sat and gloated and gloated. Challenger is no chicken, but even he was cowed. He managed to struggle to his feet, and yelled out at them to have done with it and get it over. I think he had gone a bit off his head at the suddenness of it, for he raged and cursed at them like a lunatic. If they had been a row of his favourite pestmen he could not have slanged them worse. Well, what did they do? I was enthralled by the strange story which my companion was whispering into my ear, while all the time his keen eyes were shooting in every direction, and his hand grasping his cocked rifle. I thought it was the end of us, but instead of that it started them on a new line. They all jabbered and chattered together. Then one of them stood out beside Challenger. You'll smile, young fellow, but upon my word they might have been kinsmen. I couldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. This old ape-man— he was their chief, was a sort of red challenger, with every one of our friend's beauty points, only just a trifle more so. He had the short body, the big shoulders, the round chest, no neck, a great ruddy frill of a beard, the tufted eyebrows, the what-do-you-want-damn-you look about the eyes, and the whole catalogue. When the ape-man stood by challenger and put his paw on his shoulder, the thing was complete. Summerlee was a bit hysterical, and he laughed till he cried. The ape-men laughed, too, or at least they put up the devil of a cacklin, and they set to work to drag us off through the forest. They wouldn't touch the guns and things, thought them dangerous, I expect, but they carried away all our loose food. Summerlee and I got some rough handling on the way. There's my skin and my clothes to prove it for well, they took us a bee-line through the brambles, and their own hides are like leather. But Challenger was all right. Four of them carried him shoulder-high, and he went like a Roman emperor. What's that? It was a strange clicking noise in the distance, not unlike castanets. There they go, said my companion, slipping cartridges into the second double-barreled express. Load them all up, young fellow, my lad for we're not going to be taken alive, and don't you think it. That's the row they make when they are excited. By George! They'll have something to excite them if they put us up. The last stand of the greys won't be in it. With their rifles grasped and their stiffened hands, mid a ring of the dead and dying, as some fathead sings. Can you hear them now? Very far away. That little lot will do no good but I expect their search-parties are all over the wood. Well, I was telling you my tale of woe. They got us soon to this town of theirs, about a thousand huts of branches and leaves, and a great grove of trees near the edge of the cliff. It's three or four miles from here. The filthy beasts fingered me all over, and I feel as if I should never be clean again. They tied us up. The fellow who handled me could tie like a bosun, and there we lay with our toes up, beneath a tree, while a great brute stood guard over us with a club in his hand. When I say we, I mean Summerlee and myself. Old Challenger was up a tree, eating pines and having the time of his life. I'm bound to say that he managed to get some fruit to us, and with his own hands he loosened our bonds. 
if you'd seen him sitting up in that tree hobnobbing with his twin brother, and singing in that rolling bass of his, ring out, wild bells, cause music of any kind seemed to put him in a good humour, you'd have smiled. But we weren't in much mood for laughing, as you can guess. They were inclined, within limits, to let him do what he liked, but they drew the line pretty sharply at us. It was a mighty consolation to us all to know that you were running loose and had the archives in your keeping. Well now, young fella, I'll tell you what will surprise you. You say you saw signs of men, and fires, traps, and the like. Well, we have seen the natives themselves. Poor devils they were, down-faced little chaps, and had enough to make them so. It seems that the humans hold one side of this plateau, over yonder where you saw the caves, and the ape-men hold this side, and there is bloody war between them all the time. That's the situation, so far as I could follow it. Well, yesterday the ape-men got hold of a dozen of the humans, and brought them in as prisoners. You never heard such a jabbering and shrink it in your life. The men were little red fellows, and had been bitten and clawed so that they could hardly walk. The ape-men put two of them to death there and then, fairly pulled the arm off one of them. It was perfectly beastly. Plucky little chaps they are, hardly gave a squeak. But it turned us absolutely sick. Summerlee fainted, and even Challenger had as much as he could stand. I think they have cleared, don't you? We listened intently, but nothing save the calling of the birds broke the deep peace of the forest. Lord Roxton went on with his story. I think you have had the escape of your life, young fellow, my lad. It was catching those Indians that put you clean out of their heads, else they would have been back to the camp for you as sure as fate and gathered you in. Of course, as you said, they have been watching us from the beginning out of that tree, and they knew perfectly well that we were one short. However, they could think only of this new hall, so it was I, and not a bunch of apes, that dropped in on you in the morning. Well, we had a horrid business afterwards. My God, what a nightmare the whole thing is! You remember the great bristle of sharp canes down below where we found the skeleton of the American? Well, that is just under Ape Town, and that's the jumping-off place of their prisoners. I expect there's heaps of skeletons there, if we looked for them. They have a sort of clear parade ground on the top, and they make a proper ceremony about it. One by one the poor devils have to jump, and the game is to see whether they are merely dashed to pieces or whether they get skewered on the canes. They took us out to see it, and the whole tribe lined up on the edge. Four of the Indians jumped, and the canes went through them like knitting needles through a pat of butter. No wonder we found that poor Yankee skeleton with the canes growing between his ribs. It was horrible, but it was deucedly interesting, too. We were all fascinated to see them take the dive even when we thought it would be our turn next on the springboard. Well, it wasn't. They kept six of the Indians up for today, that's how I understood it, but I fancy we were to be the star performers in the show. Challenger might get off, but Summerlee and I were in the bill. Their language is more than half signs, and it was not hard to follow them, so I thought it was time we made a break for it. I had been plotting it out a bit, had one or two things clear in my mind. It was all on me, for Summerlee was useless, and Challenger not much better. The only time they got together they got slangin' because they couldn't agree upon the scientific classification of these red-headed devils that had got hold of us. One said it was the Dryopithecus of Java, the other said it was Pithecanthropus. Madness, I call it. Loonies, both. But, as I say, I had thought out one or two points that were helpful. One was that these brutes could not run as fast as a man in the open. They have short bandy legs, you see, and heavy bodies. Even Challenger could give a few yards and a hundred to the best of them, and you or I would be a perfect shrub. Another point was that they knew nothing about guns. 
I don't believe they ever understood how the fellow I shot came by his hurt. If we could get at our guns there was no saying what we could do. So I broke away early this morning, gave my guard a kick in the tummy that laid him out, and sprinted for the camp. There I got you and the guns, and here we are. But the professors! I cried in consternation. Well, we must just go back and fetch em. I couldn't bring em with me. Challenger was up the tree. Summerlee was not fit for the effort. The only chance was to get the guns and try a rescue. Of course they may scupper them at once in revenge. I don't think they would touch Challenger, but I wouldn't answer for Summerlee. But they would have had him in any case. Of that I am certain. So I haven't made matters any worse by Bolton. But we are honour-bound to go back and have them out or see it through with them. So you can make up your soul, young fellow, my lad, for it will be one way or the other before evening. I have tried to imitate here Lord Roxton's jerky talk, his short, strong sentences, the half-humorous, half-reckless tone that ran through it all. But he was a born leader. As danger thickened, his jaunty manner would increase, his speech become more racy, his cold eyes glitter into ardent life, and his Don Quixote moustache bristle with joyous excitement, his love of danger, his intense appreciation of the drama of an adventure, all the more intense for being held tightly in, his consistent view that every peril in life is a form of sport, a fierce game betwixt you and fate, with death as a forfeit, made him a wonderful companion at such hours. If it were not for our fears as to the fate of our companions, it would have been a positive joy to throw myself with such a man into such an affair. We were rising from our brushwood hiding-place, when suddenly I felt his grip upon my arm. "'By George!' he whispered. "'Here they come!' From where we lay we could look down a brown aisle arched with green, formed by the trunks and branches. Along this a party of the ape-men were passing. They went in single file, with bent legs and rounded backs, their hands occasionally touching the ground, their heads turning to left and right as they trotted along. Their crouching gait took away from their height, but I should put them at five feet or so, with long arms and enormous chests. Many of them carried sticks, and at the distance they looked like a line of very hairy and deformed human beings. For a moment I caught this clear glimpse of them, then they were lost among the bushes. "'Not this time,' said Lord John, who had caught up his rifle. "'Our best chance is to lie quiet until they have given up the search. Then we shall see whether we can't get back to their town and hit em where it hurts most. Give em an hour, and we'll march.' We filled in the time by opening one of our food tins and making sure of our breakfast. Lord Roxton had had nothing but some fruit since the morning before, and ate like a starving man. Then, at last, our pockets bulging with cartridges and a rifle in each hand, we started off upon our mission of rescue. Before leaving it we carefully marked our little hiding-place among the brushwood and its bearing to Fort Challenger, that we might find it again if we needed it. We slunk through the bushes in silence, until we came to the very edge of the cliff, close to the old camp. There we halted, and Lord John gave me some idea of his plans. "'So long as we are among the thick trees, these swine are our masters,' said he. "'They can see us, and we cannot see them. But in the open it is different. There we can move faster than they. So we must stick to the open all we can.' The edge of the plateau has fewer large trees than further inland, so that's our line of advance. Go slowly, keep your eyes open and your rifle ready. Above all, never let them get you prisoner while there is a cartridge left. That's my last word to you, young fellow. When we reached the edge of the cliff I looked over and saw our good old black Zambo sitting smoking on a rock below us. I would have given a great deal to have hailed him and told him how we were placed, but it was too dangerous, lest we should be heard. The woods seemed to be full of the ape-men. Again and again we heard their curious clicking chatter. 
At such times we plunged into the nearest clumps of bushes, and lay still until the sound had passed away. Our advance, therefore, was very slow, and two hours at least must have passed before I saw by Lord John's cautious movements that we must be close to our destination. He motioned to me to lie still, and he crawled forward himself. In a minute he was back again, his face quivering with eagerness. "'Come,' said he, "'come quick. I hope to the Lord we are not too late already.' I found myself shaking with nervous excitement as I scrambled forward and lay down beside him, looking out through the bushes at a clearing which stretched before us. It was a sight which I shall never forget until my dying day. So weird, so impossible, that I do not know how I am to make you realize it, or how in a few years I shall bring myself to believe in it, if I live to sit out once more on a lounge in the Savage Club, and look out on the drab solidity of the embankment. I know that it will seem then to be some wild nightmare, some delirium of fever. Yet I will set it down now, while it is still fresh in my memory, and one at least, the man who lay in the damp grasses by my side, will know if I have lied. A wide open space lay before us, some hundreds of yards across, all green turf and low bracken growing to the very edge of the cliff. Round this clearing there was a semicircle of trees with curious huts built of foliage, piled one above the other among the branches. A rookery, with every nest a little house, would best convey the idea. The openings of these huts and the branches of the trees were thronged with a dense mob of ape-people, whom from their size I took to be the females and infants of the tribe. They formed the background of the picture, and were all looking out with eager interest at the same scene which fascinated and bewildered us. In the open, and near the edge of the cliff, there had assembled a crowd of some hundred of these shaggy, red-haired creatures, many of them of immense size, and all of them horrible to look upon. There was a certain discipline among them, for none of them attempted to break the line which had been formed. In front there stood a small group of Indians, little, clean-limbed, red fellows, whose skins glowed like polished bronze in the strong sunlight. A tall, thin white man was standing beside them, his head bowed, his arms folded, his whole attitude expressive of his horror and dejection. There was no mistaking the angular form of Professor Summerlee. In front of and around this dejected group of prisoners were several ape-men, who watched them closely and made all escape impossible. Then, right out from all the others and close to the edge of the cliff, were two figures, so strange and under other circumstances so ludicrous that they absorbed my attention. The one was our comrade, Professor Challenger. The remains of his coat still hung in strips from his shoulders, but his shirt had been all torn out, and his great beard merged itself in the black tangle which covered his mighty chest. He had lost his hat, and his hair, which had grown long in our wanderings, was flying in wild disorder. A single day seemed to have changed him from the highest product of modern civilization to the most desperate savage in South America. Beside him stood his master, the king of the ape-men. In all things he was, as Lord John had said, the very image of our professor, save that his coloring was red instead of black. The same short, broad figure, the same heavy shoulders, the same forward hang of the arms, the same bristling beard merging itself in the hairy chest. Only above the eyebrows, where the sloping forehead and low-curved skull of the ape-men were in sharp contrast to the broad brow and magnificent cranium of the European, could one see any marked difference. At every other point the king was an absurd parody of the professor. All this, which takes me so long to describe, impressed itself upon me in a few seconds. Then we had very different things to think of, for an active drama was in progress. Two of the ape-men had seized one of the Indians out of the group and dragged him forward to the edge of the cliff. The king raised his hand as a signal. They caught the man by his leg and arm, 
and swung him three times backwards and forwards with tremendous violence. Then, with a frightful heave, they shot the poor wretch over the precipice. With such force did they throw him that he curved high in the air before beginning to drop. As he vanished from sight, the whole assembly, except the guards, rushed forward to the edge of the precipice, and there was a long pause of absolute silence, broken by a mad yell of delight. They sprang about, tossing their long, hairy arms in the air, and howling with exultation. Then they fell back from the edge, formed themselves again into line, and waited for the next victim. This time it was Summerlee. Two of his guards caught him by the wrist and pulled him brutally to the front. His thin figure and long limbs struggled and fluttered like a chicken being dragged from a coop. Challenger had turned to the king and waved his hands frantically before him. He was begging, pleading, imploring for his comrade's life. The ape-man pushed him roughly aside and shook his head. It was the last conscious movement he was to make upon earth. Lord John's rifle cracked and the king sank down, a tangled red sprawling thing, upon the ground. "'Shoot into the thick of them! Shoot, Sonny, shoot!' cried my companion. "'There are strange red depths in the soul of the most commonplace man. I am tender-hearted by nature, and have found my eyes moist many a time over the scream of a wounded hare. Yet the blood-lust was on me now. I found myself on my feet, emptying one magazine, then the other, clicking open the breech to reload, snapping it to again, while cheering and yelling with pure ferocity and joy of slaughter as I did so. With our four guns the two of us made a horrible havoc. Both the guards who held Summerlee were down, and he was staggering about like a drunken man in his amazement, unable to realize that he was a free man. The dense mob of ape-men ran about in bewilderment marveling whence this storm of death was coming, or what it might mean. They waved, gesticulated, screamed, and tripped up over those who had fallen. Then, with a sudden impulse, they all rushed in a howling crowd to the trees for shelter, leaving the ground behind them spotted with their stricken comrades. The prisoners were left for the moment standing alone in the middle of the clearing. Challenger's quick brain had grasped the situation. He seized the bewildered Summerlee by the arm, and they both ran towards us. Two of their guards bounded after them and fell to two bullets from Lord John. We ran forward into the open to meet our friends, and pressed a loaded rifle into the hands of each. But Summerlee was at the end of his strength. He could hardly totter. Already the ape-men were recovering from their panic. They were coming through the brushwood and threatening to cut us off. Challenger and I ran Summerlee along, one at each of his elbows, while Lord John covered our retreat, firing again and again as savage heads snarled at us out of the bushes. For a mile or more the chattering brutes were at our very heels. Then the pursuit slackened, for they learned our power, and would no longer face that unerring rifle. When we had at last reached the camp we looked back and found ourselves alone. So it seemed to us, and yet we were mistaken. We had hardly closed the thornbush door of our zareba, clasped each other's hands, and thrown ourselves panting upon the ground beside our spring, when we heard a patter of feet, and then a gentle, plaintive crying from outside our entrance. Lord Roxton rushed forward, rifle in hand, and threw it open. There, prostrate upon their faces, lay the little red figures of the four surviving Indians, trembling with fear of us, and yet imploring our protection. With an expressive sweep of his hands one of them pointed to the woods around them, and indicated that they were full of danger. Then, darting forward, he threw his arms round Lord John's legs, and rested his face upon them. "'By George!' cried our peer, pulling at his moustache in great perplexity. "'I say, what the deuce are we to do with these people?' Get up, little chappie, take your face off my boots. Summerlee was sitting up and stuffing some tobacco into his old briar. We've got to see them safe, said he. You've pulled us all out of the jaws of death. My word, it was a good bit of work. Admirable, cried Challenger. Admirable! 
Not only we as individuals, but European science collectively owe you a deep debt of gratitude for what you have done. I do not hesitate to say that the disappearance of Professor Summerlee and myself would have left an appreciable gap in modern zoological history. Our young friend here and you have done most excellently well. He beamed at us with the old paternal smile. But European science would have been somewhat amazed could they have seen their chosen child, the hope of the future, with his tangled, unkempt head, his bare chest, and his tattered clothes. He had one of the meat tins between his knees, and sat with a large piece of cold Australian mutton between his fingers. The Indian looked up at him, and then with a little yelp, cringed to the ground, and clung to Lord John's leg. "'Don't you be scared, my bonny boy,' said Lord John, patting the matted head in front of him. "'He can't stick your appearance, Challenger, and by George I don't wonder. All right, little chap, he's only a human, just the same as the rest of us.' "'Really, sir,' cried the professor. "'Well, it's lucky for you, Challenger, that you are a little out of the ordinary, if you hadn't been so like the king.' Upon my word, Lord John, you allow yourself great latitude. Well, it's a fact. I beg, sir, that you will change the subject. Your remarks are irrelevant and unintelligible. The question before us is what are we to do with these Indians? The obvious thing is to escort them home if we knew where their home was. There is no difficulty about that, said I. They live in the caves on the other side of the central lake. Our young friend here knows where they live. I gather that it is some distance. A good twenty miles, said I. Summerlee gave a groan. I, for one, could never get there. Surely I hear those brutes still howling upon our track. As he spoke, from the dark recesses of the woods we heard far away the jabbering cry of the ape-men. The Indians once more set up a feeble wail of fear. "'We must move, and move quick,' said Lord John. "'You help Summerlee, young fellow. "'These Indians will carry stores. "'Now then, come along before they can see us.' "'In less than half an hour we had reached our brushwood retreat "'and concealed ourselves. "'All day we heard the excited calling of the ape-men "'in the direction of our old camp, "'but none of them came our way, "'and the tired fugitives, red and white, "'had a long, deep sleep.' I was dozing myself in the evening when someone plucked my sleeve, and I found Challenger kneeling beside me. "'You keep a diary of these events, and you expect eventually to publish it, Mr. Malone,' said he with solemnity. "'I am only here as a press reporter,' I answered. "'Exactly. You may have heard some rather fatuous remarks of Lord John Roxton's, which seemed to imply that there was some—some some resemblance.' Yes, I heard them. I need not say that any publicity given to such an idea, any levity in your narrative of what occurred, would be exceedingly offensive to me. I will keep well within the truth. Lord John's observations are frequently exceedingly fanciful, and he is capable of attributing the most absurd reasons to the respect which is already shown by the most undeveloped races to dignity and character. You follow my meaning? Entirely. I'll leave the matter to your discretion. Then, after a long pause, he added, The king of the ape-men was really a creature of great distinction, a most remarkably handsome and intelligent personality. Did it not strike you? A most remarkable creature, said I. And the professor, much eased in his mind, settled down to his slumber once more. End of chapter. Chapter 14 of The Lost World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lost World 
by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Fourteen. Those were the real conquests. We had imagined that our pursuers, the ape-men, knew nothing of our brushwood hiding-place, but we were soon to find out our mistake. There was no sound in the woods, not a leaf moved upon the trees, and all was peace around us, but we should have been warned by our first experience how cunningly and how patiently these creatures can watch and wait until their chance comes. Whatever fate may be mine through life, I am very sure that I shall never be nearer death than I was that morning. But I will tell you the thing in its due order. We all awoke exhausted after the terrific emotions and scanty food of yesterday. Summerlee was still so weak that it was an effort for him to stand, but the old man was full of a sort of surly courage which would never admit defeat. A council was held, and it was agreed that we should wait quietly for an hour or two where we were, have our much-needed breakfast, and then make our way across the plateau and round the central lake to the caves where my observations had shown that the Indians lived. We relied upon the fact that we could count upon the good word of those whom we had rescued to ensure a warm welcome from their fellows. Then, with our mission accomplished and possessing a fuller knowledge of the secrets of Maple White Land, we should turn our whole thoughts to the vital problem of our escape and return. Even Challenger was ready to admit that we should then have done all for which we had come, and that our first duty from that time onwards was to carry back to civilization the amazing discoveries we had made. We were able now to take a more leisurely view of the Indians whom we had rescued. They were small men, wiry, active, and well-built, with lank black hair tied up in a bunch behind their heads with a leathern thong, and leathern also were their loincloths. Their faces were hairless, well-formed, and good-humoured. The lobes of their ears, hanging ragged and bloody, showed that they had been pierced for some ornaments which their captors had torn out. Their speech, though unintelligible to us, was fluent among themselves, and as they pointed to each other and uttered the word, Akala, many times over, we gathered that this was the name of the nation. Occasionally, with faces which were convulsed with fear and hatred, they shook their clenched hands at the woods round and cried, Doda! Doda! which was surely their term for their enemies. "'What do you make of them, Challenger?' asked Lord John. "'One thing is very clear to me, and that is that the little chap with the front of his head shaved is a chief among them.' It was indeed evident that this man stood apart from the others, and that they never ventured to address him without every sign of deep respect. He seemed to be the youngest of them all, and yet so proud and high was his spirit that, upon Challenger laying his great hand upon his head, he started like a spurred horse and, with a quick flash of his dark eyes, moved farther away from the professor. Then, placing his hand upon his breast and holding himself with great dignity, he uttered the word Maretas several times. The professor, unabashed, seized the nearest Indian by the shoulder, and proceeded to lecture upon him as if he were a potted specimen in a classroom. "'The type of these people,' said he in a sonorous fashion, "'whether judged by cranial capacity, facial angle, or any other test, cannot be regarded as a low one. On the contrary, we must place it as considerably higher in the scale than many South American tribes which I can mention.' On no possible supposition can we explain the evolution of such a race in this place. For that matter, so great a gap separates these ape-men from the primitive animals which have survived upon this plateau, that it is inadmissible to think that they could have developed where we find them. "'Then where the deuce did they drop from?' asked Lord John. "'A question which will, no doubt, be eagerly discussed in every scientific society in Europe and America,' the professor answered. "'My own reading of the situation, for what it is worth,' he inflated his chest enormously and looked insolently around him at the words, "'is that evolution has advanced under the peculiar conditions of this country up to the vertebrate stage, the old types surviving and living on in company with the newer ones.' Thus we find such modern creatures as the tapir, 
an animal with quite a respectable length of pedigree. The great deer and the anteater in the companionship of reptilian forms of Jurassic type. So much is clear. And now come the ape-men and the Indian. What is the scientific mind to think of their presence? I can only account for it by an invasion from outside. It is probable that there existed an anthropoid ape in South America, who in past ages found his way to this place, and that he developed into the creatures we have seen, some of which, here he looked hard at me, were of an appearance and shape which, if it had been accompanied by corresponding intelligence, would, I do not hesitate to say, have reflected credit upon any living race. As to the Indians, I cannot doubt that they are more recent immigrants from below. Under the stress of famine or of conquest, they have made their way up here. Faced by ferocious creatures which they had never before seen, they took refuge in the caves which our young friend has described. But they have no doubt had a bitter fight to hold their own against wild beasts, and especially against the ape-men who would regard them as intruders, and wage a merciless war upon them with a cunning which the larger beasts would lack. Hence the fact that their numbers appear to be limited. Well, gentlemen, have I read you the riddle aright, or is there any point which you would query? Professor Summerlee for once was too depressed to argue, though he shook his head violently as a token of general disagreement. Lord John merely scratched his scanty locks with the remark that he couldn't put up a fight as he wasn't in the same weight or class. For my own part I performed my usual role of bringing things down to a strictly prosaic and practical level by the remark that one of the Indians was missing. "'He has gone to fetch some water,' said Lord Roxton. "'We fitted him up with an empty beef-tin, and he is off.' "'To the old camp?' I asked. "'No, to the brook. It's among the trees there. It can't be more than a couple of hundred yards, but the beggar is certainly taking his time.' "'I'll go and look after him,' said I. I picked up my rifle and strolled in the direction of the brook, leaving my friends to lay out the scanty breakfast. It may seem to you rash that even for so short a distance I should quit the shelter of our friendly thicket, but you will remember that we were many miles from Ape Town, that so far as we knew the creatures had not discovered our retreat, and that in any case with a rifle in my hands I had no fear of them. I had not yet learned their cunning or their strength. I could hear the murmur of our brook somewhere ahead of me, but there was a tangle of trees and brushwood between me and it. I was making my way through this at a point which was just out of sight of my companions, when under one of the trees I noticed something red huddled among the bushes. As I approached it I was shocked to see that it was the dead body of the missing Indian. He lay upon his side his limbs drawn up, and his head screwed round at a most unnatural angle, so that he seemed to be looking straight over his own shoulder. I gave a cry to warn my friends that something was amiss, and running forwards I stooped over the body. Surely my guardian angel was very near me then, for some instinct of fear, or it may have been some faint rustle of leaves, made me glance upwards. Out of the thick green foliage which hung low over my head, Two long muscular arms covered with reddish hair were slowly descending. Another instant, and the great stealthy hands would have been round my throat. I sprang backwards, but quick as I was those hands were quicker still. Through my sudden spring they missed a fatal grip, but one of them caught the back of my neck and the other one my face. I threw my hands up to protect my throat, and the next moment the huge paw had slid down my face and closed over them. I was lifted lightly from the ground, and I felt an intolerable pressure forcing my head back and back, until the strain upon the cervical spine was more than I could bear. My senses swam, but I still tore at the hand and forced it out from my chin. Looking up I saw a frightful face with cold, inexorable light-blue eyes looking down into mine. There was something hypnotic in those terrible eyes. I could struggle no longer. As the creature felt me grow limp in his grasp, two white canines gleamed for a moment at each side of the vile mouth, and the grip tightened still more upon my chin, 
forcing it always upwards and back. A thin, oval-tinted mist formed before my eyes, and little silvery bells tinkled in my ears. Dully and far off I heard the crack of a rifle, and was feebly aware of the shock as I was dropped to the earth, where I lay without sense or motion. I awoke to find myself on my back upon the grass in our lair within the thicket. Someone had brought the water from the brook, and Lord John was sprinkling my head with it, while Challenger and Summerlee were propping me up, with concern in their faces. For a moment I had a glimpse of the human spirits behind their scientific masks. It was really shock, rather than any injury, which had prostrated me, and in half an hour, in spite of aching head and stiff neck, I was sitting up and ready for anything. "'But you've had the escape of your life, young fellow, my lad,' said Lord Roxton. "'When I heard your cry and ran forward, and saw your head twisted half off and your stowessers kicking in the air, I thought we were one short. I missed the beast in my flurry, but he dropped you all right and was off like a streak. By George! I wish I had fifty men with rifles. I'd clear out the whole infernal gang of them, and leave this country a bit cleaner than we found it.' It was clear now that the ape-men had in some way marked us down, and that we were watched on every side. We had not so much to fear from them during the day, but they would be very likely to rush us by night, so the sooner we got away from their neighbourhood, the better. On three sides of us was absolute forest, and there we might find ourselves in an ambush. But on the fourth side, that which sloped down in the direction of the lake, there was only low scrub with scattered trees and occasional open glades. It was, in fact, the route which I had myself taken in my solitary journey, and it led us straight for the Indian caves. This, then, must for every reason be our road. One great regret we had, and that was to leave our old camp behind us, not only for the sake of the stores which remained there, but even more because we were losing touch with Zambo, our link with the outside world. However, we had a fair supply of cartridges and all our guns, so for a time at least we could look after ourselves, and we hoped soon to have a chance of returning and restoring our communications with our negro. He had faithfully promised to stay where he was, and we had not a doubt that he would be as good as his word. It was in the early afternoon that we started upon our journey. The young chief walked at our head as our guide but refused indignantly to carry any burden. Behind him came the two surviving Indians with our scanty possessions upon their backs. We four white men walked in the rear with rifles loaded and ready. As we started there broke from the thick silent woods behind us a sudden great ululation of the ape-men, which may have been a cheer of triumph at our departure, or a jeer of contempt at our flight. Looking back we saw only the dense screen of trees, but that long-drawn yell told us how many of our enemies lurked among them. We saw no signs of pursuit, however, and soon we had got into more open country and beyond their power. As I tramped along the rearmost of the four, I could not help smiling at the appearance of my three companions in front. Was this the luxurious Lord John Roxton who had sat that evening in the Albany amidst his Persian rugs and his pictures? in the pink radiance of the tinted lights? And was this the imposing professor who had swelled behind the great desk in his massive study at Enmore Park? And finally, could this be the austere and prim figure which had risen before the meeting at the Zoological Institute? No three tramps that one could have met in a Surrey lane could have looked more hopeless and bedraggled. We had, it is true, been only a week or so upon the top of the plateau, but all our spare clothing was in our camp below, and the one week had been a severe one upon us all, though least to me who had not to endure the handling of the ape-men. My three friends had all lost their hats, and had now bound handkerchiefs round their heads. Their clothes hung in ribbons about them, and their unshaven, grimy faces were hardly to be recognized. Both Summerlee and Challenger were limping heavily while I still dragged my feet from weakness after the shock of the morning, and my neck was as stiff as a board from the murderous grip that held it. We were indeed a sorry crew, 
and I did not wonder to see our Indian companions glance back at us occasionally with horror and amazement on their faces. In the late afternoon we reached the margin of the lake, and as we emerged from the brush and saw the sheet of water stretching before us, our native friends set up a shrill cry of joy and pointed eagerly in front of them. It was indeed a wonderful sight which lay before us. Sweeping over the glassy surface was a great flotilla of canoes coming straight for the shore upon which we stood. They were some miles out when we first saw them, but they shot forward with great swiftness, and were soon so near that the rowers could distinguish our persons. Instantly a thunderous shout of delight burst from them, and we saw them rise from their seats, waving their paddles and spears madly in the air. Then, bending to their work once more, they flew across the intervening water, beached their boats upon the sloping sand, and rushed up to us, prostrating themselves with loud cries of greeting before the young chief. Finally one of them, an elderly man, with a necklace and bracelets of great lustrous glass beads, and the skin of some beautiful mottled amber-colored animal slung over his shoulders, ran forward and embraced most tenderly the youth whom we had saved. He then looked at us, and asked some questions, after which he stepped up with much dignity and embraced us also, each in turn. Then, at his order, the whole tribe lay down upon the ground before us in homage. Personally I felt shy and uncomfortable at this obsequious adoration, and I read the same feeling in the faces of Roxton and Summerlee but Challenger expanded like a flower in the sun. "'They may be undeveloped types,' said he, stroking his beard and looking round at them, "'but their deportment in the presence of their superiors might be a lesson to some of our more advanced Europeans. Strange how correct are the instincts of the natural man!' It was clear that the natives had come out upon the warpath, for every man carried his spear, a long bamboo tipped with bone his bow and arrows, and some sort of club or stone battle-axe slung at his side. Their dark, angry glances at the woods from which we had come, and the frequent repetition of the word Doda, made it clear enough that this was a rescue party who had set forth to save or revenge the old chief's son, for such we gathered that the youth must be. A council was now held by the whole tribe squatting in a circle whilst we sat near on a slab of basalt and watched their proceedings. Two or three warriors spoke, and finally our young friend made a spirited harangue with such eloquent features and gestures that we could understand it all as clearly as if we had known his language. "'What is the use of returning?' he said. "'Sooner or later the thing must be done. Your comrades have been murdered. What if I have returned safe?' These others have been done to death. There is no safety for any of us. We are assembled now and ready. Then he pointed to us. These strange men are our friends. They are great fighters, and they hate the ape-men even as we do. They command, here he pointed up to heaven, the thunder and the lightning. When shall we have such a chance again? Let us go forward, and either die now, or live for the future in safety. How else shall we go back unashamed to our women?" The little red warriors hung upon the words of the speaker, and when he had finished they burst into a roar of applause, waving their rude weapons in the air. The old chief stepped forward to us, and asked us some questions, pointing at the same time to the woods. Lord John made a sign to him that he should wait for an answer, and then he turned to us. "'Well, it's up to you to say what you will do,' said he. "'For my part, I have a score to settle with these monkey-folk, and if it ends by wiping them off the face of the earth, I don't see that the earth need fret about it. I'm going with our little red pals, and I mean to see them through the scrap. What do you say, young fellow?' "'Of course I will come.' "'And you, Challenger?' "'I will assuredly cooperate.' "'And you, Summerlee?' "'We seem to be drifting very far from the object of this expedition, Lord John. I assure you that I little thought when I left my professional chair in London that it was for the purpose of heading a raid of savages upon a colony of anthropoid apes.' 
To such base uses do we come, said Lord John, smiling. But we are up against it, so what's the decision? It seems a most questionable step, said Summerlee, argumentative to the last. But if you are all going, I hardly see how I can remain behind. Then it is settled, said Lord John, and turning to the chief he nodded and slapped his rifle. The old fellow clasped our hands, each in turn, while his men cheered louder than ever. It was too late to advance that night, so the Indians settled down into a rude bivouac. On all sides their fires began to glimmer and smoke. Some of them who had disappeared into the jungle came back presently, driving a young iguanodon before them. Like the others, it had a daub of asphalt upon its shoulder, and it was only when we saw one of the natives step forward with the air of an owner, and give his consent to the beast's slaughter, that we understood at last that these great creatures were as much private property as a herd of cattle, and that these symbols which had so perplexed us were nothing more than the marks of the owner. Helpless, torpid, and vegetarian, with great limbs but a minute brain, they could be rounded up and driven by a child. In a few minutes the huge beast had been cut up, and slabs of him were hanging over a dozen campfires, together with great scaly ganoid fish which had been speared in the lake. Summerlee had lain down and slept upon the sand, but we others roamed round the edge of the water, seeking to learn something more of this strange country. Twice we found pits of blue clay, such as we had already seen in the swamp of the pterodactyls. These were old volcanic vents, and for some reason excited the greatest interest in Lord John. What attracted Challenger, on the other hand, was a bubbling, gurgling mud-geyser, where some strange gas formed great bursting bubbles upon the surface. He thrust a hollow reed into it, and cried out with delight like a schoolboy when he was able, on touching it with a lighted match, to cause a sharp explosion and a blue flame at the far end of the tube. Still more pleased was he when, inverting a leathern pouch over the end of the reed, and so filling it with the gas, he was able to send it soaring up into the air. "'An inflammable gas, and one markedly lighter than the atmosphere. I should say beyond doubt that it contained a considerable proportion of free hydrogen. The resources of GEC are not yet exhausted, my young friend. I may yet show you how a great mind moulds all nature to its use.' He swelled with some secret purpose, but would say no more. There was nothing which we could see upon the shore which seemed to me so wonderful as the great sheet of water before us. Our numbers and our noise had frightened all living creatures away, and save for a few pterodactyls, which soared round high above our heads while they waited for the carrion, all was still around the camp. But it was different out upon the rose-tinted waters of the central lake. It boiled and heaved with strange life. Great slate-colored backs and high serrated dorsal fins shot up with a fringe of silver, and then rolled down into the depths again. The sandbanks far out were spotted with uncouth crawling forms, huge turtles, strange saurians, and one great flat creature like a writhing, palpitating mat of black greasy leather, which flopped its way slowly to the lake. Here and there high serpent heads projected out of the water cutting swiftly through it with a little collar of foam in front, and a long, swirling wake behind, rising and falling in graceful, swan-like undulations as they went. It was not until one of these creatures wriggled on to a sandbank within a few hundred yards of us, and exposed a barrel-shaped body and huge flippers behind the long serpent neck, that Challenger and Summerlee, who had joined us, broke out into their duet of wonder and admiration. Plesiosaurus, a freshwater Plesiosaurus, cried Summerlee, that I should have lived to see such a sight. We are blessed, my dear Challenger, above all zoologists since the world began. It was not until the night had fallen, and the fires of our savage allies glowed red in the shadows, that our two men of science could be dragged away from the fascination of that primeval lake. Even in the darkness as we lay upon the strand, we heard from time to time the snort and plunge of the huge creatures who lived therein. 
At earliest dawn, our camp was astir, and an hour later we had started upon our memorable expedition. Often in my dreams have I thought that I might live to be a war correspondent. In what wildest one could I have conceived the nature of the campaign which it should be my lot to report? Here, then, is my first dispatch from a field of battle. Our numbers had been reinforced during the night by a fresh batch of natives from the caves, and we may have been four or five hundred strong when we made our advance. A fringe of scouts was thrown out in front, and behind them the whole force in a solid column made their way up the long slope of the bush country, until we were near the edge of the forest. Here they spread out into a long straggling line of spearmen and bowmen. Roxton and Summerlee took their position upon the right flank, while Challenger and I were on the left. It was a host of the Stone Age that we were accompanying to battle, we with the last word of the gunsmith's art from St. James's Street and the Strand. We had not long to wait for our enemy. A wild shrill clamour rose from the edge of the wood, and suddenly a body of eight men rushed out with clubs and stones and made for the centre of the Indian line. It was a valiant move, but a foolish one, for the great bandy-legged creatures were slow afoot, while their opponents were as active as cats. It was horrible to see the fierce brutes with foaming mouths and glaring eyes, rushing and grasping, but forever missing their elusive enemies, while arrow after arrow buried itself in their hides. One great fellow ran past me, roaring with pain, with a dozen darts sticking from his chest and ribs. In mercy I put a bullet through his skull, and he fell sprawling among the aloes. But this was the only shot fired, for the attack had been on the centre of the line, and the Indians there had needed no help of ours in repulsing it. Of all the eight men who had rushed out into the open, I do not think that one got back to cover. But the matter was more deadly when we came among the trees, for an hour or more after we entered the wood there was a desperate struggle in which for a time we hardly held our own. Springing out from among the scrub, the ape-men with huge clubs broke in upon the Indians, and often felled three or four of them before they could be speared. Their frightful blows shattered everything upon which they fell. One of them knocked Summerlee's rifle to matchwood, and the next would have crushed his skull had an Indian not stabbed the beast to the heart. Other ape-men in the trees above us hurled down stones and logs of wood, occasionally dropping bodily on to our ranks and fighting furiously until they were felled. Once our allies broke under the pressure, and had it not been for the execution done by our rifles, they would certainly have taken to their heels. But they were gallantly rallied by their old chief, and came on with such a rush that the ape-men began in turn to give way. Summerlee was weaponless, but I was emptying my magazine as quick as I could fire, and on the further flank we heard the continuous cracking of our companions' rifles. Then in a moment came the panic and the collapse. Screaming and howling, the great creatures rushed away in all directions through the brushwood, while our allies yelled in their savage delight, following swiftly after their flying enemies. All the feuds of countless generations, all the hatreds and cruelties of their narrow history, all the memories of ill-usage and persecution were to be purged that day. At last man was to be supreme, and the man-beast to find forever his allotted place. Fly as they would, the fugitives were too slow to escape from the active savages, and from every side in the tangled woods we heard the exultant yells, the twanging of bows, and the crash and thud as ape men were brought down from their hiding places in the trees. I was following the others when I found that Lord John and Challenger had come across to join us. "'It's over,' said Lord John. I think we can leave the tidying up to them. Perhaps the less we see of it, the better we shall sleep." Challenger's eyes were shining with the lust of slaughter. "'We have been privileged,' he cried, strutting about like a gamecock, "'to be present at one of the typical decisive battles of history, the battles which have determined the fate of the world. What, my friends, is the conquest of one nation by another? It is meaningless. Each produces the same result. But those fierce fights, when in the dawn of the ages the cave-dwellers held their own against the tiger-folk, 
or the elephants first found that they had a master, those were the real conquests, the victories that count. By this strange turn of fate we have seen and helped to decide even such a contest. Now upon this plateau the future must ever be for man. It needed a robust faith in the end to justify such tragic means. As we advanced together through the woods we found the ape-men lying thick, transfixed with spears or arrows. Here and there a little group of shattered Indians, marked where one of the anthropoids had turned to bay, and sold his life dearly. Always in front of us we heard the yelling and roaring which showed the direction of the pursuit. The ape-men had been driven back to their city. They had made a last stand there. Once again they had been broken, and now we were in time to see the final fearful scene of all. Some eighty or a hundred males, the last survivors, had been driven across that same little clearing which led to the edge of the cliff, the scene of our own exploit two days before. As we arrived the Indians, a semicircle of spearmen, had closed in on them, and in a minute it was over. Thirty or forty died where they stood. The others, screaming and clawing, were thrust over the precipice, and went hurtling down, as their prisoners had of old, on to the sharp bamboos six hundred feet below. It was as Challenger had said, and the reign of man was assured forever in maple-white land. The males were exterminated, ape-town was destroyed, the females and young were driven away to live in bondage, and the long rivalry of untold centuries had reached its bloody end. For us the victory brought much advantage. Once again we were able to visit our camp and get at our stores. Once more also we were able to communicate with Zambo, who had been terrified by the spectacle from afar of an avalanche of apes falling from the edge of the cliff. "'Come away, massas, come away!' he cried, his eyes starting from his head. "'The devil get you sure if you stay up there!' "'It is the voice of sanity,' said Summerlee with conviction. "'We have had adventures enough, and they are neither suitable to our character or to our position. I hold you to your word, Challenger.' From now onwards you devote your energies to getting us out of this horrible country and back once more to civilization. End of chapter